we want to ask you to turn um, as an introductory scripture lesson, a little um, unusual approach today, but what I feel God has for us. Turn to Second Samuel chapter 12. Second Samuel chapter 12. We're going to read the first six verses and then the first half of the seventh. Familiar passage here in a familiar setting. Um, David, the king, is known for his closeness with God and he's known, known for this great sin in his life. And it defined his life in a lot of ways. So this is a passage that you, if you've been around church or read much of your Bible at all, gone to Sunday school, you've, you've heard this story about David and his great sin. And we want to start there, but we don't want to end there. We want to start with his great sin, but we want to find out God's grace and mercy extended to this man. So Second Samuel chapter 12 this is after all had been done, all of David's deception, his lies, his adultery, his murder, these, this terrible, terrible depth of sin that he plunged into. And I hate to distract away from Scripture, and we, we won't, but just this, he finds himself in a place, no doubt, where he wonders how he got there. And I think we're all just one step away from the same place. We have a lot to learn from David, both in his spiritual heights as well as his spiritual depths. It's not always going to be the spiritual mountaintop that you're going to be walking on. There are going to be days of great struggle, and it's going to be days of struggle not only with the outside world, but with your own sin. So today I want to talk about how we wrestle with our sin, how we ought to wrestle with our sin. And I know that's a popular subject today. And I know that many love to hear and are excited when they hear the preacher's going to preach about sin. In many places today, the ears would immediately turn off, the minds would shift to something else, and we, their thoughts would go elsewhere. But it isn't me, it isn't me as a preacher merely speaking and standing on some soapbox preaching against sin. I hope that's not at all how this comes across today. Sin is a reality in our life, in yours and mine, and we need to know and understand biblically how to handle it when it does rest control over our lives. And make no mistake, that's exactly what sin will do. It'll take control of your life if it's not dealt with biblically. David found that out, and by the mercy and the grace of God, God sent Nathan to wake him up. And that's exactly what happened. And it says in verse 1 of chapter 12, the Lord sent Nathan. A lot to, we could dive into there. It was the Lord who sent Nathan. He didn't take it upon himself. The Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, there were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought, and he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. He used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling 
to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him, but he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Nathan said to David, You are the man. A man after God's own heart, separated from God by sin. A man that it certainly seems abundantly clear had already come to God and submitted to him and was a saved man, accomplished great things as not only king of Israel, but he'd accomplished great things even before he ascended to the throne under the power and the influence of God. This was a man who stood against the giant Goliath as a 17-year-old boy with a slingshot and faith in God, and that alone won the day. And he finds himself many years later in this depth of terrible, terrible sin. And he had been so deep into it that he didn't even, he wasn't even dealing with it. So used to it, perhaps. And no doubt, this is conjecture, but no doubt there were nights that followed immediately after this sin that David's heart was pricked and his conscience was bothered, no doubt, by all the things that he had done. The adultery with Bathsheba, and to make matters from bad to worse, killing her husband, Uriah, which is exactly what he did when he ordered Joab to put Uriah at the front lines of the battle. He knew exactly what would happen. His lies, his deceit, this man after God's own heart. And I've stopped and wondered at times, what it must be like to be called a man after God's own heart. How incredible that it must have been, how humbling it must have been as a young man. And that's what God told Samuel to tell Saul. I've chosen a man after my heart. God said David was a man after his own heart. And if there's one goal or one thing that I would love to be able to be said about me, and I surely hope it's the same for you, is that this is a person after God's heart. Longs to please Him. Longs to walk with Him every day. Longs to live a life that is in reality in fellowship with God Himself. Not just religion. Not just looking good in the eyes of the world. Not just impressing people with their Christianity. But walking with God every day. What an incredible, incredible compliment that that is. I can't think of anything higher than that. I don't care if you become the President of the United States. I don't care if you become the most successful person in your particular walk of life. Nothing will ever compare to being said, you're a person after God's own heart. What an incredible compliment that here we find him. Just unimaginable sin. Unimaginable. Had somebody done this other than David, we would just discount them and toss them to the side without a second thought and call them evil and wicked. But it's David. And we know 
that he's a man, or at least was a man after God's own heart. This is the same man who who stood for Israel. This is the same man who extended the borders of the land farther than Saul ever did, and and the land was, was prospering under him. But this man, after God's own heart, now we find him in the depths of sin, adultery, lying, abandoning his men while they are at war. And all of this happened, by the way, while David's army was out fighting for Israel. It's a sidetrack, but had David simply been where he ought to have been with his men in battle, this sin would never have happened. And just as a quick aside for you, especially that are young, most of life is about being where you ought to be when you ought to be there doing what you ought to be doing. Because if one of those three things is out of place, problems are going to follow. And David, not where he, ought, not where he was, should have been and not, certainly not doing what he should have been, he finds himself in this depth of sin We find him in this terrible place. So may we note that there is no amount of closeness with God today that will protect you completely from terrible distance from him tomorrow. No amount of closeness to God today is a guarantee to closeness with him tomorrow. Every day is a new day. Every day is a new opportunity for you to get close to God again and to stay and remain close to Him or it's a day where you'll walk away from Him or stray from Him and put enough of those days together. You may just well end up in this terrible place like David. Unimaginable place. I remember once a lady at Canaan when I was pastor there many years ago and she, a visitor came in and, and she got saved. And I remember speaking with her and she, I don't believe, as I recall, was, was not a church attender and it wasn't part of her life. And I was encouraging her to say that you, know, you need to be in church. You need to come. You need to be edified. You need to learn now of what God wants from your life and, and to know more about him. And, and I remember her looking at me and she said, I will never leave. I will always be here. I will never walk away. And I remember thinking, and I don't doubt her sincerity. I've been there. Haven't you? I'm never going to not read my Bible every day. I'm never going to not pray in a day. I'm never going to far, go far away from God because when you're close to Him, you understand there's nothing sweeter in this life than that. And I don't doubt her sincerity, and I didn't then, but I did try to encourage her saying, we have an enemy who's going to try to distract you with the things of this world. And I want you to just be prepared when it happens. I've seen more than my share of friends who have abandoned the walk. People you know and people you don't. Surrounded as a young man by other young men and older men trying to walk this walk with them and far too many have laid down their Bible. Men that God used, that I saw use. No amount of closeness with God today will guarantee your closeness with Him tomorrow. And I don't say that to put fear in your heart so much as to just simply remind you that when you wake up in the morning, 
It's time to get this book out. It's time to get on your knees quickly. Run to him every day. Because sin will set up in your life faster than you could possibly imagine. But by the grace of God, God sends Nathan to David to wake him up. Wake him up from his spiritual sleepwalking. And by the mercy and the grace of God, sometimes there'll be people in our lives that confront us with sin. And if you're like me, it's uncomfortable. I've had this happen to me. And I think it happens far too little today. But it's happened to me. Someone has come and said to me, this is in your life and I'm concerned for you about it. It's uncomfortable, but it's necessary to begin the journey back to fellowship with God. The world thinks that it's liberating to dismiss sin, to be perfectly comfortable and entirely unashamed of it. They think that it's going to somehow unshackle them to a life that is just going to be wonderful and ease and no judgment. That's what everybody loves to say. But let me tell you this today. If you live a life divorced or removed from the judgment of sin, you will be shackled by your own sinfulness. It will not free you. You'll be a slave to your every want and desire and it won't ever be fully fulfilled and you'll live a life of terrible discontentment locked up in your own unsatisfiable desires. But when somebody comes and confronts you about your sin, there's an opportunity to find liberty, find joy, and find fellowship with God once again. The world, again, they, they just totally misunderstand this. Everybody, don't judge me. This, though, is a lie. Sin separates us from the fellowship of God. And it imprisons us to our own carnal desires. And that is the issue. And I want to break through the easily misunderstood sermon on sin. It's not I... I have no desire to pick up my ruler and slap you on the wrist because of your sin. Because as soon as I slap you on your wrist, I should hand it to you and you should slap me on mine. And I am not saying that we ought not judge. We're going to get into that perhaps in a moment. The issue, though, is not about making you or me a good little Christian. That's not what sin, that's not the problem sin presents. Because you can be a good little Christian and be as far from God as you can possibly be. The issue is fellowship with God. That's the issue. That's what it's about. It's not about you being good or bad in my eyes. It's about are you in fellowship with God and sin separates us from God. It does. God knows this, and he, he, he knows that his relationship with David is not what he wants it to be, and he knows that David is not going to turn his face for whatever reason, and so he sends Nathan to tell him this story and to wake him up. But being confronted with sin when it's about returning into fellowship with God, which is the entire reason we're alive in the first place. It's the only reason. Oh, that we would understand that and that we would teach our children that from the moment that they can begin to 
possibly understand life and myself and my own identity to tell them and reinforce to them that God gave them that breath in their lungs because he wants to have a relationship with them and he wants to give them a unique and powerful and wonderful life that they can live with him through storms and struggle and trials all along the way, yet in fellowship with him and sin separates and breaks that connection. And that's what this is about. This is not about being seen. This is not about being embarrassed. Too much of the time, though, when we're confronted with sin, we're far too embarrassed and far too little brokenhearted and repentant toward God. Embarrassed, but not broken. We ought to long to live each day of our lives in the light and fellowship of God And that will prove to be a much more effective approach to avoiding sin in the first place and repenting of it in the second place. When we remember what's at stake is not how I look to others, but how I look to God. Not whether I'm impressive to other Christians or non-Christians, friends, family. How I look to God. And I would ask you right now to in your mind's eye, Remove everyone else in the room. It's just you and God. What does he see? What does he see? This whole picture is so similar in many respects to salvation. We ought to seek God so that we'll not endure eternal destruction. Sin, and when we're approached with it, we need to make it right. But it shouldn't just be about avoiding sin or it shouldn't just be about being caught in something. It should be my relationship with God is broken. And when we come to God for salvation, of course, there needs to be a desire to avoid eternal destruction in hell that is real according to the word of God. But it should be, as has been said even recently, what you have to gain in Christ in heaven and fellowship with God. That's what sin's doing. That's why I think in some ways sin in our life brings bad things to us. It's negative in the long run. It's a reminder outwardly. This is not a wise choice. And it's certainly not a wise choice spiritually. Nathan points his finger at David and he says, you're the man. And so we come to this point. You are the man. Is all hope lost? Are we to read as this, as though David's failure means any hope of ever being close to God again is now gone? This is a man who's committed murder. He's committed adultery. He's lied. He's left his men out on the battlefield to die without his leadership. Should we now come to this point to say, David, you're done? No. That's not the end of the story. Of course not. The only reason God sent Nathan to confront him was because he wanted David back. Isn't that wonderful? It's the only reason God sent him. Because God says, I want David back. Any journey back to God will be as David's is, and we'll try to move quickly, and we will. You probably already know where I'm going if you know your Bibles, the 51st Psalm. It is one of the most powerful and striking chapters in all the Bible to me. This repentant psalm of David. 
And it says that there's no question that this is all about his repentance to God after his great sin because the scriptures themselves tell us that. In Psalm 51, David begins the song to the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone in to Bathsheba. So he says, this is my repentance to God. This is what I experienced. You ever... Have you ever been encouraged by somebody who's gone through something you're going through at at the time? And how effective that it can be to hear from other people what they did? Well, this is what we have in the 51st Psalm. In Psalm 51, verse 1, he says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. He asks for mercy. He doesn't ask for justice. He doesn't ask anything else. He cries out for mercy. Now, David might have thought something like, wait a minute, I'm the king, and I can do whatever I want. This is my nation. I mean, look at what all the other kings do. They don't even have to hide this. They just do it, and everybody knows they're the king, so they ought to be able to get away with it. Sin can wrap its fingers around you so tightly that you can begin to think things like that. Wait a minute, I deserved this. Look at who I am. This is all right because of who I am. They take whatever they want, he says of the other kings. And do I not have a similar right to do the same things? And sometimes we make an excuse like that when we're confronted with sin. We think or even say things like, it's my life and I'll do what I please with it. Boy, when when you say that or think that, I'm just telling you, I've been there. And so I want to tell you, when you say that or you think that, sin has got you all wrapped up. It's my life and I'll do what I want with it. Oh, no. No, you see, that's where you're wrong. It isn't your life. It's not. Who told you it was? God didn't. Who told you it was? It wasn't God. It wasn't the scripture. I pray it wasn't a preacher. I pray it wasn't your parents. I pray it wasn't anyone who knows who God is to tell you something as silly as it's your life. Do what you want to do. Maybe it's your life. So the weight of that ought to come bearing upon you to do what God wants you to do with it. But it's his. Because you see, your life is his. He gave it to you. And he wants it back. And what a wonderful thing. There's a cycle here that I have not seen like I did in preparing for today. God gave you your life, didn't he? Did you? Nope. You came from nothing, essentially. God brought you forth out of your mother's womb. You are a living soul. God gave you that. Tell me, I I challenge you to tell me that you're an accident of evolution. It's silly and I'll stay off the soapbox, but God gave you your life. And you know why? Because he wants you to give it back to him. And you know what happens when you give it back to him? He gives it back to you greater than it was when you gave it to him. And then you know what happens when you give him your life tomorrow? He gives it back to you greater than when you had it when you gave it to him. 
And it over and over and over again, every time in my life that I've given God my will, my hopes, my desires, and I've laid them out before him and I've said, God, this life is yours. I don't understand a lot about what's going on, but I just want you to be pleased. He has turned around and given me a life that is so far greater than I had in the first place to give to him. And he does it over and over and over again. Every time I hand it back to him, sin gets in our life and we say, it's mine. This is mine. And we try to heap to ourselves all these treasures of this earth that are going to rust and just one day fade away and we're going to let go of. And we say it's mine and sin wraps its dark, cruel hands all over us. And we don't give it back to God and we end up with just what we ask for, our own life apart from God. A terrible life. A hopeless life. An empty life. David's going down this path. Even this man after God's own heart. David, though his sin was great, when he was confronted with it, we read Psalm 51. And he says at the beginning, have mercy on me. We should understand the difference between mercy and grace to understand exactly what David is saying. Sometimes we use those terms interchangeably, but they mean very different things. Grace, we'll start with that, is receiving that which we don't deserve. When we get saved, we receive grace in the promise of heaven. We don't deserve it, but we're going to be given it. That's grace. Mercy is the opposite. It's not receiving punishment that we do deserve. And so David doesn't cry out for grace here. He doesn't even begin to think about being given anything. He cries out for mercy. God, have mercy on me. And he could cry out because I believe he knew his Redeemer, just like Job did, who said, I know that he lives and I'm going to see him in the latter day. But he cries out for mercy. David's asking for mercy. And by doing so, he's asking to be delivered from that which he knows he deserves, which frankly is separation from God. That's what he's afraid of. And when you understand that sin separates you from God and that becomes the most feared thing in your life, you're ready to repent. But when it's not, when it's God, deliver me from the consequences of my sin, don't ever ask God to do that. He said, what you sow, you're going to reap. And David did. You read the rest of 2 Samuel. He reaped what he sowed, and it was not good. But he made it right with God. And when he understood that the thing that he'd lost, that he treasured the most, was fellowship with God, and when he understood that that's what was at stake, he was ready to repent. That's what sin does, and that's what's what's lost. But by crying out for mercy, David shows that to us. When we see the results of sin for what they are, which is that it causes us separation from God, then we too will cry out for mercy. Far too often we think the results of sin is embarrassment, physical pain, the loss of a job. Some other thing that somehow we tie to our sin, as the disciples did when the tower falls in, in, 
I can't remember where it was, the tower fall, and somebody asked him, who did sin? What was wrong? Why did they deserve that? That's how we think about sin. Oh, well, I've lost a job, or I've lost a child, or I've lost this financial resource, or I've lost this home, or I've lost whatever that it is. So what sin caused that? And we think of sin that way, and it's not how we ought to think about it at all. The results of sin are far worse than any of that. Do you see? The results of sin are separation from God. And I challenge you to tell me something more more important than that. More impacting than that. More life-altering than that. There isn't any. There's nothing. So how do you see the sin in your life? These are questions I have to ask myself, too. Don't think for a minute that these aren't things that wrestle in my own heart. One of the greatest challenges of preaching is knowing that what you're preaching is you have so far to go yourself. But what I can see here is that how I ought to see the sin in my life is that it separates me from the one whom I love the most. And when I no longer love him the most in my life, and I choose myself, it separates me from him. And my life takes a turn for the worse. He acknowledges his sin in verse 3. I know my transgressions, David says. And listen to what he says. My sin is ever before me I know my transgressions he doesn't blame others does he he doesn't call out the sins of others when he cries out to God for repentance he might have I've even heard and read haven't heard I've read some theologians say well Bathsheba was at fault here too David doesn't say that in the 51st Psalm David doesn't say that. He doesn't say, well, what about Bathsheba? Was she really innocent in all of this or was she trying to lure me? What about the servants that I had go get her? Why didn't they stop me? Why didn't somebody get in my way? That's not what he says. That's what we sometimes say, isn't it? Confronted with sin and we begin to list the bullet points. Well, what about this, that? Well, what about this? Now, listen. There will be reasons for our falling into sin at times. There will be. We'll identify them. One reason, I wasn't close to the Lord. I wasn't reading my Bible. I wasn't in fellowship with God's people. I wasn't this. Whatever that it was, it led to my sin. There are reasons. But don't ever substitute the word reason for excuse. There are reasons, and we should learn from those reasons. We should identify them. Look, if you know a certain situation in your life typically leads you to sin, guess what? Stay out of the situation. God gave you this brain between these two ears to reason and to think and to choose. But don't ever list these reasons as excuses. David doesn't speak of a regret 
that his plans to conceal his sins didn't work out. He doesn't say, Uriah, why didn't you just go home to your house when I brought you back from the front to be with your wife and then the child, it could easily be explained, it was yours and all of this would have been covered up and nobody ever would have known. Uriah, why did you do that and why did I have to kill you? That's exactly what many of us do. We begin to blame the circumstances and other people that didn't go along with our plan to cover our sin. And it doesn't lead to fellowship with God. It just leads to more sin. Instead, David admits his sin openly and he confesses it, that it is ever with me. You know, the only time we're okay with sin is when we don't look at it. And what I mean by that is we don't see it. We call it something else. But when we look at it, it's ugly and it's hurtful. But David here states that his sin was ever before him. He couldn't get away from it. I want to read this. When he woke in the morning, it was there. As he ate his breakfast, it was there. As he did his work in the day, it was there. As he tried to relax in the evening, it was there. When he laid his head on his pillow each night, it was there. He couldn't get away from it. Always before him. When sin in your life, when sin is in your life, don't be disheartened when it vexes you all day. Be disheartened when it doesn't bother you at all. David had gone days, days and days and days, just going about his life. But when Nathan confronts him with it, he couldn't get away from it. It's before me all the day. And when it's like that for you and for me, when sin is that where I can't get rid of it, and this is so much applicable to lost people as well, when that conviction of sin is just with you all day from the moment you wake as you go about your day to the time that you go to bed at night and you just get to a place, I hope and I pray soon, where you just say, God, I can't bear it anymore. I give it to you. And the same with a saved person who lives their life and they've allowed sin to interrupt their relationship with God and it's going to take this same kind of thing. I can't get away from it. Again, before being confronted with this sin, David successfully ignored it. But this constant burden, once it was revealed, proved to be just the remedy he needed. You see that? The conviction and brokenness over sin proved to be just the remedy he needed. Not good deeds. Not I'm going to be a better person. Not, boy, I really feel bad about that. I'm not going to do it again. Nothing so shallow as these things. It was before him all day. Couldn't get past it until he made it right with God. But he did. And he doesn't call attention, and we'll just briefly say this, to the sins of others. There's, there's something about the human condition that makes looking at other people's sin almost enjoyable. But looking at our own, terribly painful. 
David doesn't talk about what Bathsheba may or may not have done wrong. He doesn't talk about his servants who proved to be yes-men rather than men who would properly counsel him. He doesn't begin to throw other people under the bus. David's thoughts in Psalm here are on one person's sin, his own. He is consumed by his own sin. He is not offended at the sins of others. He doesn't have time to be offended at the sins of others because his sin is in his own heart and it's keeping him from the presence of God. We'll move on quickly. Verse 4, he acknowledges his sin is against God. We won't spend much time here, but we must understand that. All sin is ultimately against God, trespasses against our brother, and our trespasses against him. We are to love our neighbor and indeed love our own enemies. But all of that because God has commanded us to. In verse 4 as well, he acknowledges the justice of God's judgment. He says, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. He doesn't cry out unfair. That's unfair, God. And if there's a twisted lie of Satan in our nation today, it's this idea that things ought to be fair. Did you know that the gospel is not fair? It's not. How is it fair that the perfect son of God paid the penalty for your sin? How is that fair? It's not. It's grace and it's mercy. And sometimes when we're confronted with our lost condition or our sin as believers in Christ, sometimes we can fall into this trap of saying, it's not fair. And we have this lack of respect for the justice and judgment of God. Verse 5, we're not going to go through all of these, but verse 5, he understands that he's a sinner fully. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity. And in sin did my mother conceive me. Again, this I don't believe is an excuse. It's a recognition of his sinfulness. When we make excuses for our sin, we're not on the path to repentance that leads back to God. We should understand the reasons, as we've said. The reasons that were at play when sin came upon us, but we must not make them an excuse. Verse 6 Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being. God cares far less for your physical presence in church on Sunday than he cares about your spiritual and your heart's presence with him every day. He cares about your presence on church at church. He does. He told us not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together. It's what he said but he's looking for you. You. Do you see that? He's not looking for you to jump through hoops, to jump through religious uh, exercises. God's not interested in merely outward motions. We can be in sin and still carry on as good little Christians for a great long while. You can. And if you don't believe me, you're fooling yourself. You can there's no hiding our hearts from God, though. Can't be done. 
He sees them as clear as we see the noonday sun on a cloudless day. He knows them. Repentance is not about going through some external act of religion. It's about getting our hearts right before God once again through sincere repentance like we read in the 51st Psalm. In verse 7, Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. He understood that this was going to be a work of God to make him right again. Repentance includes the realization that we are in need of God to clean us. You see that? I know I'm going to close shortly. But do you see the one who does the cleaning when we repent? It's not us. It's God. Our hands are far too filthy to clean ourselves. You ever tried to clean something with a dirty rag? Pretty frustrating, isn't it? Usually ends up just making whatever you're trying to clean more dirty. Same thing happens when we try to clean ourselves up after we find ourselves in sin and know that we've been found in sin. Maybe somebody's confronted us with us. And so, you know what? I'm going to be a good person. And we try to pick ourselves up by our bootstraps. But true repentance understands that it is God who cleans us. And we're not made just a little bit better or a little bit cleaner, but altogether better and altogether cleaner because God has cleaned us. I ask you, those of you that have been saved, were you made just a little bit better? Did you go, boy, I feel a little bit better. It was altogether better, wasn't it? It was peace. I've been forgiven. I've been forgiven by the mercy and grace of God. And it's a very similar thing once we've been saved, if we've allowed sin to get in our heart get into our lives. There are moments and there should be in our life when we give it back over to God and we have a Psalm 51 moment and God cleans us up. And it's a wonderful, liberating experience when he does. Because he wants to. That's why. That's why he's bringing it to our attention. A lot of people have this idea of God. He's up there and he just wants to slap people every time they do something wrong. No, he's trying to correct you because he knows and he loves you and he knows that, we want, that what he wants for you is the best thing. Verse 17, and this is the key that I want to end with. The sacrifices of God. This is what he's learned. He probably already knew it. In fact, I believe he must have. But he states it here. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Are you broken over your sin? Wonderful. That's wonderful news. That's the best news that I could hear. If a lost person comes and says, I'm just broken over my sin, I will rejoice in that because you're not too far from the kingdom at that point. But a lack of brokenness is far from the path of repentance. Our unwillingness to be broken prevents us from the restored relationship with God that he longs to give. This is where so many turn away. They refuse to admit their guilt before God. And they turn up the volume of the world and try as hard as they can to drown out the conviction that they feel in their hearts. And there'll be plenty of stations that this world has to offer you for you to turn it up. 
but it will not be the peace that you can have in the middle of absolute quiet with just you and just God and feel peace and safety and security. If you find yourself never being able to be alone with God, sin's got you. It's got you. And you need to start there. And read Psalm 51 and others like it. Allow the brokenness over sin to bring you closer to God. Don't ignore it or put it away. Embrace it and bring that brokenness to God. Because you know what God loves to do with brokenness? He loves to fix it. He loves to fix it. He wants to fix it. There's a phrase, and I don't know why this movie has had such an impact on me, but there's a phrase in that the movie about the song, I can only imagine, when the dad who treated him so badly says one day, I understand you, you try to fix things, you want to fix things because so much was broken. I see me in that, and you probably see part of you in that. We want to fix things. When the best thing we can do is say, God, it's broken. I can't put it back together. I don't know which piece goes where. I don't know what to do about this situation. I'm, I'm vexed by it. I'm, I'm concerned about it in my life. No, it's, it's broken, and I need you to fix it. And when we stop trying to fix it, just hand it to him. He says, here's your life. I've fixed it. But we run from that. Why? Why? We don't run from it anymore. Use that brokenness and cling to it and then go to God and say, I'm broken, but I know you can fix me. Don't let sin Rob you of the life God intends for you. Don't ignore sin in your life because God surely doesn't recognize what sin does to your life and repent of it and realize that God is ready to restore you as soon as you turn and walk down this path to Him of repentance with all your broken pieces. I long to see that for all of us, for you, for those who've never heard of a salvation, I long to hear of it. I rejoice still so much in hearing Zane's testimony and the lightness in the eyes and in the heart of God fixed it. And, and I enjoy hearing all of those testimonies and I can't wait to hear more. So if sin's in your life, take it to God. It's not about... It's not about checking boxes for Christian expectations. It's about walking with God. And that's why it's so dangerous and so hurtful to allow it to continue to run in your life. Let's have some.